It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is July the 30th in 2023, and my guest is Dr. Simon Whitney. Simon is a family physician and ethicist. He taught at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas for 22 years. He is retired from practice medicine, but continues to publish and teach about medical ethics. Today, we're going to talk about his recently published book, From Oversight to Overkill, Inside the Broken System that Blocks Medical Breakthrough and How We Can Fix It. The book has an important message. Medical research is too slow, something that we've covered many times on this podcast. And there's a reason that we haven't talked about yet. Excessive oversight by the so-called Institutional Review Board System, known under the acronym IRB. This is a crisis and is largely unknown to the public. There's a vigorous debate underway about the IRB system's failures, but it's been hidden away in specialty journals and medicine, law and ethics. It's time for the public to be informed about what is wrong and what we can do about it. So, Simon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. Simon, how did you get into this topic of IRBs that might be a bit obscure to the general listener? It's obscure to almost everybody. I've never met somebody who's heard of an IRB in spontaneous life. Well, I got into the topic because as a law student at Stanford, I wanted to send a survey to doctors about their opinions about physician-assisted suicide. Did they think it was should be legal or should it stay illegal? Was it moral or not? Would they involve, involve themselves if it were legal? Things like that. And my law school advisor said, oh, well, you, you're going to need to get IRB approval for that. And I said, what is an IRB and why would I need approval? He said they're set up to protect research subjects from being abused at Stanford, a questionnaire like yours has to go through them. Now, I thought it was crazy that uh, my questionnaire asking doctors their opinions on a theoretical question could possibly cause them harm. But the IRB firmly backed up my advisor and said, yes, we need to review not only your method and your questionnaire and your consent process, but if you want to change a single question in your questionnaire, we have to review that change as well. Well, questionnaires, good questionnaires, always go through multiple iterations. And so when I sent the fourth iteration out without IRB approval, and they found out I got into trouble. So 
I did the only logical thing after that and joined the IRB. And that's how I got introduced into this uh, fascinating and bizarre part of the academic world. So an IRB really comes into play or into your life once you do medical research, right? So once you're at that intersection, it's unavoidable. Everyone has to go through that process. How, how does that look like in practice? Is there like a group of people that sits in like university chairs and how do you find out about them or how do they find out about you? Well, in most scientists in training find out about the IRBs and their advisors who say this very harmless project you plan on doing needs to go through the IRB. If they are a, uh, a if they have completed their undergraduate training and their medical school training and they're on their way to be fully being fully pledged investigators, then they are introduced to the IRB system, which really has two parts. The first part is you have to complete the IRB application, which is usually online and asks many, many questions designed to ferret out each possible problem that there might be with your proposed research. And that application goes through the IRB staff, which is prepared to identify any issues and kick it back to you. Once it gets through the staff, once it's been processed in this fashion, then it goes to a meeting of the IRB committee. This committee usually meets in private, usually 12 or 15 people, mostly from the faculty of the institution at which you are. And they review the, uh, your proposal. In theory, they're looking for ethical problems. In practice, they're looking to see if it meets every one of the long, long checklist of items they have to worry about, make sure are present or make sure are absent. Uh, for instance, uh, it's considered wrong or unethical to refer to hope in your protocol title or, or your protocol messaging. The reason for this, uh, believe it or not, is that IRB dogma holds that the word hope is coercive and that a prospective subject who has, let's say, heart disease or cancer, who sees a protocol where it says we hope to show or we hope to find or we hope to improve, that that word is going to draw them in even against their will into this protocol, which might not be right for them. And so the word hope, just as one example of how many, is forbidden. That's so very this, obscure. And anyone in the street that you tell that would be like, what? Why is that? Well, it's this is how the ethics of IRB review is a very interesting ethics. <laughs> was about it, to, we're getting to that, yeah. It goes to the second uh, level of review, which is by the committee itself. And the committee either says, go ahead or make some ask, ask the question or makes an adjustment, which means it goes back to you for response and then back to the committee for final approval. And while some committees are pretty expeditious, some committees feel they haven't done their job right unless they've requested at least one change. And so for those committees, every proposal is delayed at least by the time to get the first review and then by the time to get the reapproval. It's a slow process. And if your research is low risk, it's kind of maddening. 
scientists don't mind spending time on things that matter. Scientists have no problem spending months trying to figure out which medium is going to get which bacteria to grow. But they don't much like spending time on things that they perceive as having no value, such as protecting subjects from research in a protocol that has no potential for harm. They see no point in this, and it makes them upset. But, and this gets to the strand of technology's point, because each scientist wastes perhaps 10 or 15% of his or her time and money on this problem, it must make more sense for them to just accept it, shrug, and go along with it than to fight it. If all of them were to fight it, the system would collapse in a moment. Uh, but it, this is the collective action problem where no one of them has enough incentive to actually fight it, and therefore the system keeps on going. Yeah, there's many things that recur in when it comes to stranded technologies. So when I hear this, and I'm a nerd about regulations myself, I hear the guilty until proven innocent idea, right? So yes. It's not like um, innocent until proven guilty, right? So you have to prove to someone, and, and this is, you know, um, strange. And other things, I'm also reminded of, I have a professional background in questionnaire design. And oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, for like market research and consumer insights, public opinions, but also a bit of pharma here and there, right? So it can be very technical. And even among professional circles, it's really, really hard to good design good questionnaires. And oh. especially if there's many cooks that stir the soup. Right. And when you have many people review questionnaires that aren't equally capable of like clear thinking or trained in like good practices of questionnaire design, that creates a whole mess <laughs> that makes something for a very user unfriendly experience in the end. And just um, the design of what you get out of it, very incomprehensible or incohesive. Um, but the general listener, when they hear a policy or an institution like an IRB, they, um, they, they're introduced by its intent, right? So IRBs are there to ensure patients and are treated ethically. And people then usually assuming that that's the case, right? They have this kind of trust and authority. If you had only one minute on TV to explain how IRBs, something that's supposed to ensure patient safety, can cause harm, possibly. Well, uh, IRBs had a noble intention to prevent subjects from being harmed or to protect, prevent a repeat of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. Noble intentions, which are executed through flawed systems, will result in bad outcomes. And that's what we have here. How do we know, right? What indicators can we point at? To the tremendous waste of time, energy, and opportunity caused by the IRCB system's dysfunction. You mentioned the police state earlier. And IRBs were set up kind of as a police organization to police doctors or researchers who were trying to do medical research. And this concept that crime will be rampant within your field is essential to police departments everywhere. 
if there was no crime in the little city, pretty soon the police department would be finding itself getting less funding from the mayor because we have the police for a reason. Well, the IRB that's policing scientists turns out to discover that scientists are not a very crime-prone group. Uh, there are many things keeping them from abusing subjects, including simple humanity, prudence, habit, their advisors, and many other factors as well. So in this situation, the incidence of attempted wrongdoing is going to be very small. And it's hard for the agencies that oversee IRBs to prove they're actually doing anything worthwhile. It's a low-yield area. As a result, the agencies that oversees IRB operations uh, presses hard on anything that could be conceivably considered misconduct, even if in reality it's not. And I should be clear here uh, that medical research for our purposes can be divided up into two big pots. The first is drug and device development, which involves many hundreds of billions of dollars. It's run by an agency, the FDA, with thousands of employees and whose own budget is in the billions. This is a huge part of research regulation, and it is not what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about a much smaller sector, the research that is not funded to develop drugs or devices, and that's conducted by scientists, either with funding from a charity or from the NIH, or sometimes just out of their own free time. This research is overseen by the Office for Human Research Protections, OHRP. And is, it is this part of the regulatory apparatus, the OHRP part, that I think needs the most dramatic reform. Yeah, that's very important because we talked about the FDA many times on this podcast, and it's kind of the more well-known behemoth. So the IRB and the office you just mentioned is less known. I didn't know that office existed until I read about your book. I knew that IRBs existed. Can you somehow quantify by how much um, these studies can be delayed? Are we talking about months? Are we talking about years? And what that costs to the individual researcher or the kinds of studies or research we could have with a better system? We're talking about months and then months and then months. And if you add enough months together, you will eventually reach a larger calendar unit. We're also talking about dollars spent. If you have a three-year NIH research grant, that's 36 months. If it takes three months to get the IRB process up and rolling, you've had three months in which you were funded, but in which you could not do anything because you haven't got IRB approval yet. If it takes four months or if there's a delay later to get IRB reapproval, then it takes more time. This is the kind of thing that makes scientists mad. And occasionally one of them will speak out. My favorite is Fred Coe. Frederick Coe was a nephrologist, a kidney specialist in Chicago. And he wrote a wonderful, if scathing essay about how hard he has to work to get IRB approval to study the proteins in urine that is left behind by his clinic patient at the end of the day. He has beakers of urine sitting around in his laptops 
And he can either throw them down the drain or look at the proteins they have, which helps him figure out why some people get kidney stones and why some people don't. But in order to save this urine from the toilet, he has to go through a rather elaborate process, which he spells out with, uh, uh, it's a, it's funny, but it's also horrifying because kidney stones are a very serious problem. People end up in the emergency room screaming in pain. And some of those people become addicted to pain medication who were not previously. It's one of the pathways to addiction. And so if we had better kidney stone treatments, it would help society on many levels. IRBs are slowing it down, and Fred Coe is mad about that. Do we know, or can you say, how globalized are IRBs? Is it something that's peculiar to the United States? Are other countries doing it similar? Is there some kind of harmonization? Well, the U.S., during World War II, uh, the U.S. tried consolidating researchers and federal money to see if we could tackle some of the medical problems of the war, such as the treatment of malaria. And it turned out that if you have a bunch of scientists from different places working together and well-funded, they can do amazing things. When the war ended, the U.S. continued its, process, its uh, habit of funding medical research generously. And this generous funding resulted in a tremendous boom in biomedical innovation. It was wonderful. And this largesse was not limited to the United States. Some U.S. funding went to collaborators abroad, uh, but it went with a catch, with a, with a string attached. And that was, they had to have an IRB system too. And so wherever U.S. research dollars went, it took with it this uninvited stepchild, the IRB system. So almost every English-speaking country that does research has IRBs, and so do many others. When I've talked with people in France, they have the same system and the same difficulties. Not every country has the same system. China has a system which has similar names, but is run very differently. And uh, uh, I think if the U.S. system grinds to a complete halt, uh, the Chinese will not feel any compunction about stepping around us and moving down the path ahead of us. Let's talk a bit about why we have IRBs, how they came about. So medical research or medical experimentation has a dark history. Which episodes, in your view, best encapsulate the ethical challenges of research and experimentation? There's a smaller one with a larger one. The smaller one is uh, the researcher, Chester Southam, who injected live cancer cells into patients in the hospital without their knowledge. This was completely unforgivable, not because he harmed them, because they were not harmed. He thought their immune systems would protect themselves well, and they did. Nobody was harmed, but it certainly violated their right to choose what should be done to their own bodies. And that caused something of a scandal. The bigger scandal was the Tuskegee syphilis experiment in which U.S. public health service doctors working in Tuskegee, Alabama, uh, for 40 years followed men whom they knew had syphilis and whom they not only did not treat, 
they kept them from getting treatment by anybody else. All these men were black. Almost all of them were poor. These were men who lived on the barest margins of life. And the federal government's actions uh, worsened their suffering. Uh, this was the worst experiment ever conducted in this country. And it led to, not to the creation of the IRB system, because we had a reasonable system before, but to its consolidation in federal law, which meant that it was harder to change. And so many of the problems we have today stem from the law that was passed back then in 1974. Yeah, there's several themes also recurring with many other episodes where we talked about regulation in different areas and there's remarkable similarities, right? So one is that it's big public disasters that cause kind of a regulatory change. And the other is sort of from flexibility to hard coding something into law, right? So before you said there was a better system, maybe you can describe that a bit. Well, after the cancer cell ejection and other experiments like it, the NIH set up a system requiring public health service, that is NIH funded researchers to have their work reviewed by an IRB. That was in 1966. And that was a reasonable system, and it recognized that what IRBs need to do is balance two competing considerations. On the one hand, you don't want to abuse or harm subjects. On the other hand, research that is not harmful should be allowed to proceed without delay. And so you have these competing considerations of the subject and society. I should be very clear that it's not a zero-sum game. If the subject would be harmed by research, no matter how important it is, we shouldn't do it. I'm not proposing that we can kill a few people and we'll save thousands more. No, 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 no. Uh, but if it's a question of whether or not um, reviewing somebody's medical records or studying their discarded urine would be helpful, um, the harm to the subject is either theoretical or hypothetical non-existent, uh, in that case, the research ought to go ahead. You shouldn't slow it down with these cumbersome procedures. So we're looking for that balance. And the early IRBs tried to strike that balance. But once it became established in federal law, that was where the problems began. The law, understandably, uh, emphasized the protection of subjects it emphasized that while IRBs should permit harmless research to proceed, uh, that they should see their primary goal as protecting subjects from harm. And that emphasis on the subject protection side and the absence of consideration to promoting research resulted in the unbalanced system we have today. Because if, if you cannot do too much to protect subjects, then the door is open to the kind of research that we have, cumbersome, slow, expensive, and ultimately costly in terms of human life and suffering. There was an episode in the book that seemed like from another era, just in its strangeness. Who was Nicholas Sen? Nicholas Sen was a wonderful surgeon from Chicago around the turn of the 20th century. In other words, 
he was active around uh, 1900 and thereabouts. And there was a lively controversy at the time as to whether cancer was an infection or something else. And Sen was never afraid to be bold. And he said, well, I can prove it's not an infection. Here's how I'm going to do it. He had a patient with a cancer of the lymph nodes of the jaw with big swollen lymph nodes underneath his jaw. And in the operating room, Sen took out the cancer. And uh, there it was glistening, shiny, maybe about the size of a lima bean, a couple of them. And he took part of one of these, about the size of a pea, and he either put it or had an assistant put it into an incision in Sen's own forearm, tucked it into the muscle there, sewed the skin over it, and said, well, let's see what happens next. <laughs> you got to love the guy. <laughs> of course, an IRB wouldn't have let him do that, but it was no IRB. And besides, Sen was the kind of king and god whom very few people would have said no to. And Sen went back to his office and the, the lump grew, became painful. Anybody else would have rushed back to his colleague and said, take this thing out, it's going to kill me. But Sen was unfazed. And in the course of a couple of weeks, the painful swollen lump got smaller and went away. Uh, Sen thought he had proved that cancer is not an infection. Well, we know now he didn't, he did nothing of the kind. He proves two things. First, that, uh, that cancer is not easily spread to someone else. That's true enough. Uh, and that's because of our immune systems. He also proved that scientists will do the craziest things. And while it's kind of humorous to have him doing that to himself, knowing as we do that he came out okay, uh, it wouldn't be so funny if a scientist did that to a subject, which is what Chester Southam basically did. So, and it's a reminder that we do need IRBs. We need some kind of regulation because there are going to be scientists who have slightly crazy ideas or who discount the harm that their experiment could cause, or who say to himself, I'm going to cure cancer and any risk is worth it, even if the risk is not being taken by him. We have to have some way to keep these folks from doing harm, both for their sake, for the subject's sake, and for the sake of not having more scandals like Tuskegee, not, which none of us want. So we need IRBs, we need an IRB system, but we do not need this system. Yeah. What about self-experimentation? Because it seemed to me that Sen and generally someone who does self-experimentation that is taking a risk on behalf or to the benefit of others, right? So an example that I discussed with Jessica Flanagan on my podcast was when you're a doctor or a nurse during COVID, you're also taking on a risk on behalf of others, right? You pose yourself at a higher risk of infection. So why shouldn't you be allowed to do your experiment with your own body that you, by definition, consent to, to do research that can benefit the public? Well, I think as a general rule, you should be allowed to do research with your own body that might benefit the public. Uh, this is not a topic I've thought about at length, so there may be exceptions of some kind. Uh, but I'm in, you know, self-experimentation is long and honorable tradition. And occasionally the doctors who are doing it died. 
uh, it does happen. And occasionally they made great breakthroughs. Uh, one of the, one of the best known was, I believe took place in Germany where a cardiologist threaded a catheter through his own vein up into the chambers of the heart when such a thing had never been done before. Uh, his, his, his department chair had said, you would die if, if you tried that. It would set your heart into fibrillation. You'd never survive. And so he went and went to the x-ray lab and got a photograph of himself with the end of the catheter, obviously, in his heart. That was, and he didn't die. <laughs> that was the beginning of one of the most important interventions that we use for heart disease nowadays. So, I mean, that was a very important step forward done by somebody who wasn't afraid to be the Nicholas Sin of his own time. Is it fair to describe the 1950s or 60s or that time before? That, that's how often how people imagine things before, like a big sweeping regulation. They were like the Wild West, right? So there was a lot of malpractice and snake oil salesmen. So how would you describe the period before IRBs? Well, there was, um, of course, the period before IRBs goes back to the Pharaohs. <laughs> But the 1950s and 60s in the U.S. were a time of tremendous medical breakthroughs. Um, one of the big ones was the, was the polio salt vaccine. And, um, that vaccine was field tested in the 1954, I think it was trials. And I was a subject in that experiment. <laughs> I got, my parents got a note saying, we'd like Simon to become a polio pioneer and to test this important vaccine and we hope you will you will agree this is an important undertaking sign below so parental signature was required but the parents were given no information about the possible risk of the vaccine even though the people who developed it knew that there were some risks and they knew that some children would be harmed this information was not disclosed to the parents it was a uh, by today's standards, grossly unethical, unethical experiment. And you couldn't do it today. And yet by doing it, then we have saved millions and millions of people from polio, adding regulations, which fail to recognize the importance of research, fail to recognize the suffering of people who need relief from their burden of disease. It's, it's just wrong. Oh, and by the way, I got the placebo. In the polio trial. Okay. <laughs> a year later, I got the real vaccine. Okay. Yeah, there's some uh, Balaji Srinivasan once quipped, like, who has done clinical trials on the effect of these regulations, right? They're also not been tested before, even though they have a very large scale societal impact. And there's typically no process after to correct them, which is a big problem with these things. I want to get closer to how IRBs became what they are now. To get there, can you talk about who was Hans Jonas and what was his influence on that process? When the IRB system got rolling in 66, medical ethics as a whole was a very, very early development. Uh, and so when the 
of American Academy of Arts and Sciences set up a conference to discuss the ethics of medical research. They had prominent doctors, prominent lawyers, uh, Margaret Mead, an anthropologist, and some other people, but they had no ethicists to talk about the ethics of medical research. So they found Hans Jonas, who's, who was a, a refugee from Germany. Jonas had been a student of the great German philosopher Martin Heidegger. But Heidegger declared his allegiance to Hitler and to the Nazi regime. And Hans Jonas fled. And he spent much of the war fighting with a rifle in his hand against the Germans. And then after the war, he came to the New School for Social Research in New York City, and where he was a distinguished professor. So when he was asked to make some contributions to the philosophy of medical research, what was foremost in his mind were the experiments of Joseph Mengele in the Nazi concentration camps, in one of which Jonas's own mother had died. This was the kind of research he was thinking of. And, and of course, the recent American scandals, including the cancer cell injection experiments. And so he saw science as potentially making important breakthroughs that might benefit people, but as also a tremendous threat. And the philosophical guidelines he laid down emphasized the importance of protecting the subject from all possible harms, including dignitary harms, including harms which many subjects would not believe were harmful. So he set pathway for research ethics to be, let's say, um, a conservative, very, very conscious of the rights of prospective subjects. Yeah, in philosophy, we call it a strong deontologist. Just uh, one quote that encapsulates his thinking. So Jonas attacked the belief that we must pursue cures for the diseases that ravage us, that we cannot afford to forego continue medical advances. To the contrary, he wrote, we must accept what we cannot avoid. And that includes disease, suffering, and death. What society, what society genuinely cannot afford is a single miscarriage of justice, a single inequity in the dispensation of its laws, the violation of the rights of even the tiniest minority, because these undermine the moral basis on which society's existence rests. He concluded that progress is an optional goal, right? So do nothing wrong, do no harm under any cost, right? Which is strong deontologism, which is a position in philosophy that some people hold, but most people, when you tell them, oh, like, um, can you hurt one person, like peak them with something to like save the lives of a million people or like all of humanity? Yeah, I, I mean, probably. <laughs> Not saying that it's an easy question to answer, but most people would say there's some kind of balance, right? I mean, you shouldn't harvest one people's organs to save five. That sounds wrong, but you know, if it's if you're talking about millions, so at some point there are consequentialist reasons. So I'm curious, how was that? Why was that reasoning by Hans Jonas accepted and not questioned? Was it something in the bureaucratic process that 
the ones that adopted the law felt fit their agenda? Well, you are assuming that uh, Hans Jonas and the other philosophers were influential. I think that the research ethics crowd was attracted to this topic because it posed interesting questions like the one you were just discussing, and they have written a great deal about it. But what we have in practice is not ethics, but pure bureaucracy. There is no ethics in the day-to-day workings of any IRB. And they really can't because IRBs are dominated not by ethical considerations, not by thinking about theontology or consequentialism or utilitarianism. They are just thinking about staying out of trouble. And when that's your primary goal, ethics has little to contribute. It's simply not relevant. Now, ethics is very important in the IRB debate because IRBs hold themselves forth as being all about ethics. And even though that is not true, it means that scientists who question IRB are assumed to be against ethics. And this is one of the reasons why scientists are a little reluctant to speak out, because they've spent their lives in the clinic or the lab. They don't really know much about ethics. And so when somebody says, this is ethics, you can't oppose it. They don't have the language. They don't have the knowledge to know why this is untrue. To them, it makes no sense. They object to it, but they can't say, wait, what you're proposing is not, is not ethics in action. It's just a regulatory system trying to cover its own ass. Which to me is shocking as someone who has a background in philosophy and also economics, it seems to me that many scientists or doctors lack education in probabilistic thinking, which I think is like the key to understand and consume research and make decisions based on that. And then ethics, but yeah, I mean, what, what can you do, right? So you have no incentive. If you find in the ethics that how the policy is right now is wrong, there's nothing you can do about it. Right. So this really discourages people from studying or spending a lot of time studying a subject because there is just um, no point. Some people like us can find that out and write books about it. And hopefully later we can also get to some solutions. Um, but for ordinary scientists and doctors, that just makes no sense to question that system. That's right. Can you talk a bit more about um, if I get you right, then there's like two key policies that led to the system that we have today, policy and procedure 129 and the National Research Act. That's right. Policy procedure 129 was the public health service directive requiring all externally funded grants to be reviewed by an IRB. That was enacted in 1966. Uh, then in 1972, we have the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, which I should mention is actually really the United States Public Health Service syphilis experiment. Nobody calls it that, but that's its proper name. Anyhow, that was exposed in 72, and it led to hearings and the passage in 74 of the National Research Act. This act was the one that said the main goal of the system is to protect subjects. And that set the path for the, the set into our current dysfunction. 
that descent was much accelerated around the 2000s. Uh, in 1998, Congress held hearings to see how well the uh, OHRP's predecessor agency, OPRR, was doing at enforcing um, the IRB rules and at punishing institutions where IRBs were asleep at the switch. And the congressman scolded the officials who are present for not disciplining more institutions and said, seems to me like you're not doing much. Maybe you shouldn't have your government job and your nice government pension. The officials went back to their offices and suddenly discovered uh, more than a dozen institutions which were not doing the right thing. Now, in some cases, you can make an argument that they were right. In other cases, it's much harder. Uh, there was, for instance, the institution which had defined a quorum of an IRB meeting as one as more than one half. And the agency said, no, that should be one half plus one. And th this is not a reason to temporarily shut down all federal funding to an institution, resulting in the loss of millions of dollars per day. But that's what happened. So institutions became terrified they were going to be shut down next. Remember, we're talking about huge dollar costs, not to mention the public relations disaster being declared that your university is abusing human subjects. And so that made IRBs very risk averse. There also was the fact that over its entire existence, federal oversight, whether by this earlier agency or by OHRP, has never faulted an IRB for being too strict. It's never happened, even when IRBs were clearly being unreasonable. And in fact, even when they were not following the law, it still never happened. So IRBs know that being too strict can never cause them problems with federal authorities, only being perceived as being too lax. And that's why they make very sure that your protocol meets every possible stipulation and leans over backward in every way. That's why they can insist on not using the word hope, because if they think the word hope is coercive, well, then it is, because there is no appeal. The IRB is the final word, and OHRP is certainly going to back them up. It's, it sounds to me that so there's different reasons that we discussed in this podcast that leads to these hard coding bad laws into the fabric of society. Um, one typical one that I'm not sure I'm recognizing here is the Baptist and bootleggers argument, right? So the Baptists are the ones that generally care and say that alcohol is immoral and the bootleggers are the one that benefit from alcohol prohibition, right? Because they can charge more money in the black market and things like that. Um, not sure I noticed this here other than having cushy government jobs, um, but correct me if I'm wrong. The other thing I do notice is the action bias in case there's a public disaster, right? So the Tuskegee study, right? In which case we defaulting to like strong signaling to the public, hey, we're doing something about it. And by doing very strict measures, similar to like airport security or whatever, that is kind of a signal to say, hey, we care, right? That is then leading to this to this overreaction that stays persistent over time. Would you agree with that observation or would you would you add anything to that? 
you couldn't be more right. And one of the problems here is victims of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment can be seen. We have their photographs. We have their stories. We know who they are, how they lived, and how they suffered. Victims of the IRB overregulation cannot be identified because if you have, if 100,000 people die of heart attacks in any given year, and a thousand of them could have been saved by better research, those thousands deaths blow into the 100,000 that couldn't have been prevented and we'll never know them. Alex Tabarox, an economist who talks about this in the context of FDA regulations, and he says there's an invisible graveyard of people who were killed because drugs were not made available. That same invisible graveyard is large enough to accommodate people killed by the OHRP IRB system. And it's, it is to the everlasting shame of the ethics community that they have not addressed this issue. Carl Schneider and I published an article arguing that there were thousands of deaths caused by delay of a heart attack study in the 1980s. We published this in the journal General Internal Medicine, and there was very little response from the ethicist community except for one ethicist who wrote to say, well, surely the number can't be that big. There were maybe 129 people who died as a result of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. And that was front page news and is front of consciousness for ethicists to this day. But if thousands of people died because of this IRB caused delay, shouldn't that cause substantial reflection and reconsideration of whether or not we've struck the balance the wrong way? The answer is for ethicists, it does not, it has not. And they do not, they, well, don't get me started about the ethicists because I am one, but I, you know, they see this whole thing as more a religion than a regulation, regulatory system. And in their view, the system has to be more or less as it is. And to suggest the system should be significantly changed is to betray the memory of the, of the, of the Met of Tuskegee. I think that's not true at all. I think that to harm present and future populations, black and white alike, is to misuse the memory of the men of Tuskegee. Yeah. Alex Tabarak was on my podcast too, by the way. Oh, okay, Discussing good. Discussing that as well in DFTA. And yeah. just uh, my observation there is too, the, the seen and the unseen are, again, difficult to show so people don't care. How does that make you feel when you're making that argument that is, you know, very obviously, like, I'm pretty sure you've asked yourself the question many times, am I the one who's wrong? And is that the other ones? Am I the one not seeing something that the others are seeing? How do you feel about that? It is an emperor's new clothes kind of phenomenon. Uh, and I spent years yelling and pointing at this and years being ignored. Uh, my mistake was to assume that academic research ethics is a discipline with an allegiance to facts and the truth. I was wrong uh, because what I wanted to say threatened their fundamental sense of right and wrong, and they were never going to get past that to the question of the facts, the truth. They thought it was just plain wrong. 
and I wish I had learned, I wish I had figured this out years before, uh, but I know now that they're never going to be persuaded. And if we're going to make a change in this regulatory system, it will be over their objections, which is how we should do it, because the system needs to be changed. That was powerful. Well, so let's talk about solutions. What or how, what's the solution space ranging from what are more reform ways of doing things? What are more radical things we can do? What's the menu you can offer? Well, Carl Schneider uh, wrote a book arguing that we should abolish the IRB system and just rely on uh, torts and other uh, ways to prevent or remedy wrongdoing. Uh, I think that's I think that's too radical. I think we need to have a system. Scientists are human and they make mistakes. Um, so we need to have some kind of system. And I think the kind of system we have that we need should be very similar to the way it was in the beginning, when there was not this heavy federal oversight, when there was not this emphasis on theoretical things like the coercive power of hope, when there were just a bunch of people sitting around in the IRB meeting room saying, does this make sense? How risky is this? Are our prospective subjects going to understand uh, what it means to do this, to do that? And then they would say either yes or no. The system we have now, instead of using that common sense approach, has become heavily bureaucratized and filled with a sense of fear. And so if we return to something very much like the original system, I think we'd be far better off. It, reform would require an act of Congress because you can't tell OHRP to behave more rationally if it has irrational incentives and is operating under the guidance of a statute that is unbalanced. We have to have an act of Congress. And when people say to me, Congress is never going to do something, they're too divided to agree on anything. I say, well, I don't think that's true. I think there are people on, in Congress who would like to make something a little better and what's more bite-sized and more apt, more open for improvement than this part of the IRB system. I don't know a single Republican who is in favor of kidney stones. I don't know a single Democrat who thinks Alzheimer's disease doesn't matter. And so if, and furthermore, because the OHRP IRB system is unknown to everybody, there are far fewer stakeholders involved. There's far less preceding publicity of all kinds to be gotten through. People have never heard about it unless they're scientists, in which case they know all about it. So I think that it wouldn't be that hard for to get a Republican and a senator and, and a Democrat to agree this needs to be approved and to go ahead and improve it. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Like it's a more low hanging fruit, right? So then like the FDA. It's bite-sized. Yeah. It's bite-sized <laughs> and it's clearly wrong. And you get a bunch of scientists to testify to how much it harms their research, harms scientists' training. And, and for, for no reason, I'm not talking about, you know, human subjects research has all kinds of fascinating ethical gray areas. What kind of research is appropriate in children? What kind of research is appropriate 
for people with terminal cancer? What kind of research is appropriate for people who are in institutions? These are tough areas with no easy answers. I'm not talking about any of them. I just want the system to get the ridiculous, to get the obvious questions right and to stop coming up with ridiculous answers. Is that too much to ask? No. So here's another possible solution space. So we, what could we do with offshore research and clinical trials, right? So, and I'm concretely speaking about uh, an island that's part of the country of Honduras. That's, by the way, only a two and a half hour flight away from Houston, direct flights. And working there with a medical clinic that has an IRB. Meaning, if I understand correctly, they're authorized to have oversight over these trials. So, but at the same time, we have a special economic zone with very far-reaching and deep regulatory autonomy, right? So we can do, th we have a common law-based legal system with mandatory liability insurance for hazardous business activities. And on top of that, you kind of have voluntary regula regulatory options to decrease your liabilities, right? So this way you can kind of create a market for continuous improvement of existing regulations. That's kind of the idea of the system. Point being, you and I, we can go to the jurisdiction and propose a new set of regulations for how medical research is done. So it, what are the, what's possible and what's not possible within this system? I like the idea of a place or a number of places where Research is regulated more rationally, which is what I think you're trying to explain to me. Exactly. Um, the, and the good thing about that is it can show that it can be done and that harms don't result. And perhaps if a small island off a small country were able to do this successfully, you might get a bigger island or maybe even an entire small country to do the same and have this virtuous regulation model be picked up on larger and larger scales. At some point, you're still going to need to bite the bullet and try to tackle the U.S. regulatory system as a whole, uh, because you can't offshore the kind of research that's being blocked here in the U.S. to your island. One of the case studies that I talk about is the study of oxygen in very premature babies. And that required 18 neonatal intensive care units from across the United States to cooperate because without that, they wouldn't have had enough of these tiny babies to know what helped them the best. And that's the kind of research that you have to have a big country to do. And so ultimately we have to fix the U.S. system as well. Yeah, for sure. But what I'm kind of hoping is that we have like a major breakthrough medical innovation and we have documented it very properly, how the different, more rational approach works. And then that can be something that can receive good media attention and then it could inspire reform proposals in the United States or in other countries. At least that's my dream. I like that. I like that. So, <laughs> yeah. And unless, you, unless you have dreams, they'll never come true. Exactly. So it is really possible to try these things out and. Would love to invite you to visit us sometime. It's a really beautiful island. Maybe there's very good advice that you can give to the clinic and to the new regulatory um, proposals that we want to adopt there. Anything else that we didn't talk about in this context that can help us 
think about solutions or help us better understand what we're dealing with? The, the problem and the opportunity is both that the system is unknown. It's a problem because nobody knows about it. It's an opportunity because you can make a change without there being, without everybody recognizing that's obviously a bad thing. The one obstacle to change that I've noticed is what I mentioned earlier, the ethicists and others who say that any change will be a slap in the face of the memory of, of the men of Tuskegee who died. The answer to that is that the current system, among other things, is afraid of controversy. They're afraid, IRBs are afraid of drawing attention to their institutions for any reason, including not just subject harm, but of anybody objecting to anything anywhere. And as a result, they are particularly likely to reject research that would benefit minorities. And so we have Ruth Marcus, a nurse with the University of California at San Francisco, who one studied the illegal sale of single, cigar single cigarettes in San Francisco's inner city. And her IRB said, no, you may not study this. They never gave her a good reason why she couldn't. She, the, there was nobody going to be harmed by having her scientists, her, her research associates, going into little stores, liquor stores and delis, asking for a single cigarette and seeing if they could buy it. That process wasn't going to harm anybody. The IRB said, no, you can't do it. And by the end of this process, when she had exhausted her appeals and lost, one of her community collaborators who had read up on the history of IRBs said, this IRB saying we can't study the sale of single cigarettes is like Tuskegee in reverse. So the main argument for changing the system and for overriding the, feel, the theory that this is all this protecting minorities from abuse is that in fact the system is harming minorities now. Simon, how can listeners support your cause and how can they find you? They can find me through my email switney, S-W-H-I-T-N-E-Y at bcm.edu, which is also in my book. I'm online. I'm easy to reach. Um, I don't get a ton of emails, so feel free to email me. <laughs> what was the second question besides reaching me? What else they can do? Oh, they can complain. They can talk to their Congress, their senator, their, their representative and say, what's this deal? I understand that, that a significant fraction of the money I donate to charitable contributions for medical research and of the taxes I pay for medical research is going to this system that isn't working very well. That seems like a waste to me. And I have gotten an inquiry from Capitol Hill about whether this might be something worth going forward. If we had a couple more half Capitol Hill offices interested in change, I think we'd be um, looking at a decent possibility of making something happen. Fantastic. Simon, this was really a fascinating episode and deep insight into a part of the medical innovation system that I didn't know much about before, finding out about your work and your book. This is, has, contains many important lessons for, for my work and the work that we do down in Prospera and hopefully also for listeners that we listen to this conversation. We learned more about one really interesting case study 
um, that confirms and but also adds color to some of the lessons that we were drawing so far about what's holding back regulatory innovation and what's holding back technology development from accelerating in areas that could save our lives. So thank you so much, Simon, for coming on the show. Thank you, Nicholas. It's been a pleasure. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.